Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Genesis 21.1, the beginning of the triennial reading. And we spoke last week, for those of you who didn't hear it, we, shame on you, um, for those of you who didn't hear, we started the story of Sarai and Hagar, the, Sarai, the wife of Avram, uh, and Hagar, her handmaid, who she gives to Avram to have a child because she uh, has not had a child. And so we're dealing with the text as we have inherited it. We're dealing with the text as written by the final redactor. The final redactor chooses, right, what pieces go in to anything and then chooses exactly the language and how it's left to us. Um, the final redactor is, of course, a Yahwist and, uh, is, and by the way, we think Yahwism is late. These stories originate even in our people's tradition before there is um, monotheism worshiping Yahweh only. Um, so w- most scholars are starting to agree that that's pretty late, that shift. These texts have a history before ours, of course. Um, and even in our texts, it is recognized that the folks that we're talking about um, don't come from Canaan, right? These are not stories about the locals who then become the Israelites. These people are from Mesopotamia. These people are from Mesopotamian culture, and they would have, particularly the women, would have been um, part of a different worship system, a different cultic system, and they would have had rank within that system in a way they did not, obviously, in the Israelite priesthood. Um, so a lot of these stories we believe are, are um, well, we know because we see stories like them in the ancient world all over the neighborhood. These stories come out of the Mesopotamian traditions around women uh, and around their role in the cult. So uh, one thing that I didn't say uh, last time in talking about Sarai, like we know her name means princess, uh, and we've talked about the fact that there's a lot about her life and her story that lines up with different kinds of priestesses in different parts of the Mesopotamian world. We can't narrow it down to just one. Um, it could be a mix. It could be, you know, we don't know exactly where Sarai, you know, th- that story originates. Probably there are lots of those stories all over the ancient Mesopotamian world. Akkadia, Sumer, like all of these, Babylon, all these places had different traditions, but they were similar. They are pre-patriarchal. We know that. Um, we don't know that they are matriarchal. We know that they are matrilocal, so that we know that they lived where, when a couple married, they lived where the woman, the mother lived, um, and and matrilineal. Often they were the line inheritance traced through the mother, particularly if she has a certain status you know, then that translates through the mother. Often the head of the woman who was in charge, the high priestess of any given major temple um, would have been the sister or daughter of the king, which only makes sense. If you think about the relationship always between a monarchy and the church, the monarchy and religion, 
The monarch has to have the blessing of the religious authorities or there's lots of problems and we are, our history books are filled with what those problems are and how they manifest, right? Um, and so it was the same in the ancient world. So if you're the king, it's a smart move to install your daughter or sister as high priestess in a very influential temple system. In the big cities, to the big you know, the big hoo-ha gods, right, you. So it makes a lot of sense if we connect Sarai to being a priestess in the in the pre-Israelite narratives, you can imagine that her name, Princess, works, right? She would have been pretty high up. And as a matriarch, as the founding matriarch, we have to believe this is a story of a woman with high rank. The other way we know that is that last week we, t- we saw that she, uh, that she took control, right, over inheritance and gives her handmaid to her husband. And we're going to see she acts with agency again uh, in this week's Parsha. Okay, so we ended last time with this promise to, it lines up in the third year, which is kind of nice. It lines up that the second half of the story is in the third year is the first half of the story and the third year is the second half. Often we miss the last parts of stories because we jump over that section. It just so happens that the first half we read last time was in the third third of last week's Parsha. The rest of the story happens now in the third third of this week's Torah portion, Vayera. All right. <clears throat> so looking at our text, Vadonai Pekad et Saraka Asher Amar Ve'as Adonai Saraka Asher Diber. So we have a verb here that God is doing to Sarah, Pe Kuf Dalid, this right here, Pe Kuf Dalid. God Pekads Sarah. Pakad in, uh, in biblical text is always a good thing. Um, there are ways that God can take note of one that is not a good thing, <laughs> right? There's ways that if God notices you, it's not good. This Hebrew verb is a good thing. So God takes note of Sarah as God had said and did, and God, and Yorhevafe did for Sarah as, uh, God had spoken. And the usual formula that we get here, vatahar vateled, she conceives and bears. She conceives, uh, <laughs> she conceives and bears a son to Avram, the son of his old age, right? This, the, his old age, the time of his old age, uh, asher diberato Elohim, as God had told Avram. Now, some scholars who are looking at these texts kind of the way we are right now, um, Notice, and Savina Tuval notices that there's possibly two stories, often there's more than two, you know, two stories put together here. Um, both the remnants of Sarai having her offspring be, her heir be Isaac. Um, if it was first Ishmael, then it becomes Isaac, as we're going to see this week. Um, some people want to say, yeah, there's a different story here about Sarah, first wife of this guy, Abraham. And you'll notice they point to this to say, how do we know that there might be another version? It's because Sarah here bears a son to Avraham. Okay, so go back to verse 3, please, Rachel. Vayikra Avraham et Shem Beno. This is the other way they indicate that possibly this is a different tradition, is Avraham names his son. So um, the, the power of naming is a huge, is a huge deal in Torah. Asher Noladlo, the kid born to him. So this might be a different strain of a different tradition and a different relationship from for Sarah to this guy, Abraham. 
as opposed to Sarai's relationship to Avram that we saw. So it's the first time I've actually heard that, but it's very interesting. All right. Um, okay, so he names him Yitzchak. So come down to verse four, and we see Vayamal Avraham at Yitzchak Beno. So at eight days, Avraham circumcises Yitzchak as Elohim commanded him to do. Now, what's interesting to note is Ishmael is circumcised at what age? 13. And Avraham is circumcised at the same time. So Avraham is not from a culture that circumcises, obviously. Or he would have circumcised his son anyway without being, and he would have been circumcised. You don't do that at 99 for the fun of it. Right, so at 99, he circumcised. Ishmael is circumcised. So this is a new, a new symbol of a new cult, right? A new relationship to a new religious tradition. We know that because we're proud of this as Jews. This is the beginning of our covenant. But if we go back and imagine that Sarah is not familiar with circumcision then possibly this informs the reading of what comes next, right? So now her presumed heir, Yishmael, has been circumcised. We knew that. He got circumcised. That might already be a problem or an issue. And now Avraham has taken her son, Isaac, and circumcised him at eight days old. Did he ask permission? Right? Like, Yishmael was 13. Sarah has no reason to expect Abraham to take her eight-day-old son and circumcise him. She didn't talk to God about this. So um, so it's something we tend to gloss over in the text, but possibly this is where the real issue lies. <laughs> Get it, issue? This is where it lies um, about the whole <laughs> inheritance. Sorry, Mark, I couldn't help it. In- the whole inheritance thing, right? So Hagar... Yishmael, by the way, the Egyptians, Hagar is Egyptian. The Egyptians circumcised. So Hagar and, and her son, you know, is fa- maybe fine, probably expects her son to be circumcised around 13. And now Avraham gets circumcised too, right? So now you have Avraham and Hagar, um, Avraham and Hagar doing this thing that's familiar to Hagar. It's now a new thing Avraham's doing. Then he takes Sarah's son at eight days old and does the same thing. This this new thing that Sarah would not have been familiar with, nor was Avraham. Yeah. Why well, so would the uh, Egyptians circumcise so, at eight days? So every well, they don't. They we're not sure, but they it could have been fertility. It was a fertility right. So um, why did the Jews circumcise? Why is Abraham circumcising, right? So the, the question is why circumcision as a ritual? Then you have to figure out for each culture what it is. It possibly has the same origin in every culture. Yeah, Emelinda? Yes. So, um, right. So because if you buy, let, let me put that the other way. So, um, Rachel, you can unshare the screen for a second. Um, uh Go the other way. If people are circumcising at 13, obviously that is not pleasant, right? So 
why 13? That, that can become, anthropologists would a, a, approach it that way. Why at 13? Well, 13 we know, because we put our kids up and make them do terribly embarrassing stuff in front of all of their friends and family at that age. We know that that is a critical age between childhood and the beginning of adulthood, right? A woman's body can now become pregnant. And so this was the age of fertility. So the question is, why would circumcision be something you did to the body of a male around fertility, around the time of, of adolescence? Do anybody remember? I've taught you this. He wouldn't be able to do very much. Oh, my goodness. So it slows him down for a little while, <laughs> but, but not for long. Robin's laughing her butt off. Okay, so um, does anybody, nobody remembers. Okay. Is it, so, is it perhaps to be part of um, a tribe that you all do the same ritual? Of course. Yes. 100%. Why that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right? Yes, you're right. 100 million percent. Blood, danger, pain. Absolutely. People scar at, for, at the age of fertility. You know, so yes, 100 million percent. The question is, why take off the head of the skin, the foreskin of the penis? It doesn't sound very intuitive in terms of, oh, I know what we could do to bond as a tribe, right? So Tikva Freimer-Kensky of Blessed Memory, one of the greatest Bible scholars who died way too young of breast cancer, um, who wrote In the Wake of the Goddesses. So, you know, roots a lot of her stuff uh, in, in the understanding of these stories coming from, of course, a, a previous culture that, that worshipped the goddess and had priestesses. Anyway, she, we were in class with her. This was our first year of rabbinical school because we went by civilizational period, biblical, rabbinic, medieval um, modern contemporary. That's how we learned. And so um, our biblical year was our first year. We're all new. We're new to each other. We're new to this whole business. We're sitting there and we're at this, we're at this text. We're talking about circumcision and Tikva Freimer-Kensky of Blessed Memory says, here's a marker. Here's the whiteboard. Somebody draw for me a flaccid penis, an uncircumcised penis. So a couple of us looked at each other and I was like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. So, um, so she said, and then nobody would do it. So she said, okay, describe it to me. So we kind of, somebody described it. And then she said, now talk to me about that penis, that uncircumcised penis when it's erect. What changes? Oh, voila. What changes is exactly what the change would be if you remove the foreskin. It makes the penis appear as if it's erect and ready to be fertile at all times. So it's a way of enhancing the the potency of the penis in terms of its appearance. Maybe they thought it was function as well, and you know, and increasing you know the likelihood of fertility. But it definitely seems to be related to fertility. If it's related to fertility, and you look at what happens when you remove the foreskin, I think it's a pretty good guess. As much as we can guess anything, you know, like about why people do things, but I think it's a pretty good guess. But why would Abraham move it to eight days then? That well, so uh, in that context, right? So either to differentiate from other cultures who did it as a fertility ritual, because why? Why are we doing it? What What are we told in our texts? Is it about fertility? Robin's like, That's no, a covenant. It's a covenant. 
It's a sign of the covenant. So it is a reconstruction of a practice in the neighborhood cherished by many peoples to identify their males just by how they look as being part of this particular culture and this particular right. But if you're differentiating what it means, you wouldn't do it at 13 because those people might think you're doing it for the same reason they are. If you want to distinguish, then you do it as soon as possible to make this baby a member of the covenant. You want to bring that baby into the covenant as soon as possible. Before day eight, babies bleed to death because factor K doesn't kick in the clotting factor until day eight. You push it back as far as you can. They discover before day eight, babies die. So this is as early as possible. Okay, so Sarah's son is taken by Avraham and is circumcised at eight days. This is nothing familiar to her. If, in fact, these stories originate from a Sarah, a Sarai who has agency in her own religious life, you can imagine what this might mean. Right? Somebody takes my baby, my partner takes my baby, and without asking me, has her baptized. <laughs> Right? That has a bit more resonance for us, doesn't it? Right? You take my baby and have my baby baptized? Wait a minute. Right? And it's not something you can undo. Now, you might can ignore the waters of the baptismal font, but you can't ignore what happens in circumcision. It changes the body permanently. So if we stand in Sarah's place, we might begin to understand a little bit of what's going on here which is different from last time when Hagar was getting uppity with Sarai. That's a different issue. We are now dealing with a whole nother problem, possibly, right, that the text is bringing up. Okay, so he give, Abraham names his son, circumcises him at eight days old, and we're told in verse 5 that Abraham was a 100, 100 years old, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah says, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. So this is, again, how the, how the elephant gets its trunk, right? Is Why is he called Yitzchak from Tzachak, laugh? Because she says, everyone will laugh with me. And she adds, because it's like, why are they going to laugh? I, we don't get it. Like, why, why, is it, why is this funny? Like, what's there to laugh about? Um, yeah, Barry says, why so many comedians are Jews, right? So, um, okay, so she unpacks that a little bit. And this Hebrew is pretty tangled to try to, um, well, maybe it's not this one. Let me see. Vatomer mimi lel Avram heni kavanim. So she, she said, she unpacks the laughter by saying, who would have said to Avraham that Stara would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son in his old age. That's what she's explaining the laughter to be about. That like who would who to thunk it? And he, yet here we are. The child grew up and was weaned, and Avraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now again, this is another line of Torah we tend to just read over, because um, for us it's like okay, they threw a party, duh. Like he's he's weaned. What this means is when a child is weaned, they move from the women's tent to the men. This is a big moment. Sarah loses some control now. She loses access to her son. He's now hanging out with the guys, 
right? This is a big moment. It's after this that we see some things develop. Once she loses control and loses access in a patriarchal culture, that's where we see the next thing going on. What's the next thing she sees? Now he's hanging out with the guys. So she can only kind of watch. She has no control over what he does. She just watches. And what does she see? Vatere Sarah et Ben Hagar Hamitzrit. Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian. Notice Egyptians put in here. Not slave, not handmaiden, not concubine. Hagar the Egyptian. She sees the son of the Egyptian that she bore to Avraham, Mitzachek, playing around. So we know from other texts that Mitzachek has sexual connotations. Uh, it's how um, it's how Rebecca and Isaac are given up as husband and wife, not brother and sister, because they're Mitzacheking. And they know that they are not brother and sister, because brothers and sisters do not Mitzachek like that. Right? They don't play around like that. Or at least not where anybody can see them. Um, uh, so, so <clears throat> it can mean taunting, right? You know, you're teasing, playing meaning teasing. It can mean something about idolatry <clears throat> or impurity. All of these are represented, all these meanings can be represented by that shoresh litzachek. Sadi Chet Kuf. Think through all the permutations of what that is. If he's teasing, if Ishmael's teasing Isaac, possibly she's protective and doesn't like how he's teasing him. If they're playing around sexually, possibly, you know, this is something, it's not about necessarily sexual, but kind of that kind of power dynamic that's about, you know, boys harassing younger boys that has an edge of, you know, machismo that's kind of about, you know, sexuality. Or if we read that she's an Egyptian here and it's the son of the Egyptian that Sarah's concerned about, it makes a little more sense for us to go to the connotation of impurity or idolatry. He's doing something that indicates that he's part of a different ritual culture than what Sarah wants for Isaac, possibly. Anyway, whatever it is, it's Sarah, it's, it's enough that Sarah knows that he has to go. Now, remember Ishmael has been her heir to this point. Ishmael, right, is her son through her handmaiden, who she's demoted to being a slave. Does the move of demoting Hagar to slave disqualify Yishmael from being the heir? We don't know. Maybe now that he's the son of a slave, he can't be the heir to Sarah's, you know, uh, estate. We don't know. Possibly it's um, that this influence that he seems to have is that uh, it comes from his mother. But hasn't he already been accepted as the heir? It can change. So the... By whose decree? So, so, the, so, the, so that's part of the conversation. Who has the power to disinherit him? So why didn't she just disinherit him? 
is another one of the questions. Just make him not the, the heir apparent anymore, right? Just disinherit him. But she says to Avraham, banish that slave woman and her son. Jody says it's always about the money, sadly, right? Unless we really do take seriously the backstory to these stories, in which case Sarai's talking as a priestess about the son who will be her religious heir. Then it's not about the money. It's about Egyptian culture corrupting her son. Egyptian religion and, and ritual corrupting her son because she saw it happen. They were mitzachaking in a way that she knows that, that Isaac's influence is what is at stake. And the only way to make sure that that influence goes away is to banish Hagar the Egyptian and her son. Hagar the slave who is Egyptian. She has to be banished. Now, slave here, to Mark's point, Vatomer Avraham Garesh Ha'amahazot. Banish this ama, this slave. That's a different word than we had for her in the beginning. In the beginning, she was Shifcha. She was a handmaiden. That is a different status than an ama, right? And if, if you don't take seriously those gradations, just think about Downton Abbey for a second. Right, Downton Abbey and the chief butler versus the steward versus the, right the rank of servants was very important, and it was a very serious hierarchy. So she's been. Sarah makes it clear she goes to Abraham. She thinks she has the authority, and Torah agrees. She says to Abraham, "Banish the Amma. She's now a slave." So banish her. So it seems he has to do it as the patriarch. They're living in a patriarchy now. The patriarch has to do it, but Sarah is very clear that she believes she has the authority to demand it. So banish the Amma and her son so that, so you could say, you know, so that he doesn't inherit the son of the slave, this slave, in with my son, with Yitzchak. She's now being sure that Ishmael will not be the heir and that the foreign influence on her son is gone. <clears throat> and the thing distressed Avraham greatly, for it concerned a son of his. But God says to Avraham, do not be distressed over the boy or your slave, Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says. And actually what it says in the Hebrew is, Shma Pekola, listen to her voice. We've had this conversation. Listen to her voice, not obey her. Listen to her voice. Because it's going to be through Yitzchak that you are going to have seed. That's where it's coming from. It's from Sarah's son, Yitzchak, not Hagar's son, Ishmael. Um, so listen to the voice of Sarah. Some commentators want to suggest Avraham's big failure in this whole thing is he didn't listen to Sarah's voice when she's in agony about how Hagar is treating her. He doesn't hear her. Listen is the same word as hear in Hebrew. He doesn't hear her voice, the agony, the pain, the betrayal, the fear. 
the loneliness. He doesn't hear her voice. And that's the problem. And God gives him a reprimand. Listen to her voice. Once again, she's in agony for some reason and distressed about this whole situation. Listen to her voice. Do what she says. Go on. <clears throat> Thank you, Rachel. And also the son of the slave, right? I will make a goy, a nation uh, of him too, because he is also your seed. All right. So what we know from this <clears throat> is that is that Hagar and Ishmael are now free. We're going to see that that's not always such a great thing, but they are free. All right, so a couple of things. Um, Rachel, you can stop sharing for just a sec. Um, okay, so one thing about our text, the way we have it, um, when she says, you know, banish them, she it's, the, it's referred to here, Ishmael is defined as Avraham's son, not Sarah's son. Right, So the whole point in having Ishmael was for Sarah to be built up. But it's very clear that it's no longer that Sarah identifies Ishmael as her, in any way about her. It's about this Egyptian and this slave. So somebody with no status and someone foreign who's clearly something's going on with that. Um, and in Lipit Ishtar, so a text, a legal text from the neighborhood, predating Israelite culture. Um, there's a text called Lipit Ishtar, and section 25 of Lipit Ishtar says, if a man married a wife and she bore him children, and those children are living, and a slave also bore children for her master, but the father granted freedom to the slave and her children, the children of the slave shall not divide the estate with the children of the former master. Yes, and earlier, if, if I understood what you said on the circumcision, that the circumcision was for Ishmael, and that this, at the same time, he did this circumcision of Isaac, so that the reasoning at that time was not something about the K factor, but rather that both children, that Ishmael was due to circumcision because he was 13, and at the same time he did Isaac, which show, which shows, could show Abraham accepting both his, of his, both of the kids as his own. There's no question Abraham accepts them both of his own. That's never been a question. Yeah, but I'm saying that this is an explanation, perhaps, an explanation of uh, why the eight-day circumcision, because it was the 13th. No, it day. happened. Abraham's been circumcised and Ishmael was circumcised. This is different. This is the birth of Isaac and he's, sacri he's sacrificed. Freudian slip. He's circumcised at eight days. It's different. No, but I thought you had said he was circumcised at the same time no, 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 sorry. Oh, okay. I no, I misspoke that. if I said that. No, that happens. And then we have the birth of Isaac and he's taken by Abraham to be cir circumcised at eight days. Okay, not at the same time. Then. This new business that Abraham is about, that Sarah is not necessarily about or down with. It might have been horrifying. Even those of us who do circumcision 
Who wants to hand an eight-day-old baby over to a moil to, forgive me, but mutilate? Like, who wants to do that? Nobody. Even those of us who do it don't want to do it. Now imagine Sarah. Who, this is not anything that means anything to her. And you just took my kid and you did what? You did what? At eight days old? Let him finish third grade. So, right. Um, so that's possibly part of right the dynamic. Okay. So wait, what was I saying? So okay, let's let's, let's unpack Lipit Ishtar because I can't. You can't ignore this, right? That this is the norm of what the law would have been. Is that if a man has a wife, she bears him children. Those children are living, and a slave also bore a child, but the father grants freedom to the slave and her children. The children of the slave will not inherit by law. They are disinherited by law if they are freed. So what is Sarah actually asking? Possibly she went to her Mesopotamian attorney and said, we have some problems going on here at home. So possibly she, she's going to somebody, she, she's used to Mesopotamian law, and she's saying, I don't like what's happening. I don't want Yishmael anymore. He's been influenced by something else. I don't want him inheriting. I don't want any danger of him inheriting the estate with my son. I don't want him any part of it. And so legally, her Mesopotamian attorney says, well, you know, if the patriarch frees them, by, by legal definition, Yishmael is cut out of the estate. And she's like, okay, well, fine. She goes home and says, okay, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. You're going to free them. Now, the patriarchal text we have calls it gerish, exile, banishment. Okay, so I don't argue that the, the patriarchal narrative spins it differently, but the kernel of this story would have been Sarah following Mesopotamian law free them, and then I don't have to worry at all about Ishmael inheriting with my son. That makes perfect sense once you read Lipid Ishtar. Now, the patriarchal author has turned it into banishment and kind of a vengeful act on Sarah's part, and we're stuck with that. But I just like that we have another way to read it, so we're not always trying to explain why Sarah's so mean. It's possible the original version of the story before it is interpreted by a patriarchal uh, author is that she just wanted to do legally what she needed to do to protect her assets, period. Who of us would not tell a woman to do that? Just saying. Get a good attorney. (laughs) Right? Rabbi, what do I do? Get a good attorney. Okay. So early the next morning, Avram took some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them on her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. And she wandered about in the wilderness of Be'er Sheva. By the way, if we take seriously the backgrounds of these stories, and if Sarai is kind of her own person, and she's pretty up in status and all of that, Avraham, where does Avraham wind up? Do you remember? Be'er Sheva. Mm-hmm. never comes back to Hebron we never hear of Abraham moving back to Hebron where Sarah is ever he comes to bury her when she dies we don't know that he's been living there we, Torah tells us that he lives in the land of the Philistines a very long time it is very possible 
that he sends Hagar and Ishmael ahead of him. He frees them, sends them ahead, and he possibly goes and has a life with her later. Sarai's in Hebron being a huge deal. She's not going to leave the cult center of Hebron and Mamre, where the oracle is. Why would she leave? She's very involved there, possibly. So they wander around in Beersheba. Okay. When the water is gone from the skin. Now, of course, the, the version that we have is that they, they leave with very little, right? And she's in danger. She is, again, out of place. Remember the two stories of Hagar? She's out of place. She's not in her setting. That's where everything happens for Hagar. That's where she meets the Malach last time. And it's where it's, this is all going to unfold. Again, is in the wilderness where Hagar is out of place. By the way, all the men who are going to have serious encounters with God, where does it happen? Out of place. Moses is in the wilderness. People Israel are going to get Torah in the Midbar, in the wilderness. It's always out in the middle of nowhere where you are out of your usual context. That you have these moments, right, of, of theophany. Okay, so here, so now let's go to the Hagar that we do inherit. So Hagar has been banished with her son and very little uh, water and food. The, when the water was gone, now it means they're going to thirst to death. And, you know, and it's, a, it's an agonizing death, thirsting to death. And it takes a long time. So she, she puts the child under a bush, presumably as some kind of shade, the only shade available or protection. I remember the episode of Highlander where she's like scorching in the sun and all she's got is her little shawl. And so she crawls under some thorny bush that has no leaves on it and stretches her shawl, you know, over the bush to get any relief from the sun. And it made me think immediately of this, that she puts him under whatever she can you know, to, to give him any kind of shade or some protection, maybe. She goes and she sits against him. So my colleague and classmate, Rabbi Tova Spitzer, says, this is Hagar's last act of defiance, is I will sit against this. Right? The word mineged can mean across, right? Facing. But it, it also literally means neged, against. So Harhek, so she's how how far from him is she? She's a bowshot distance um, from him. For she says, Al Hayeled. Do you remember what happened in the last encounter with Hagar and the Malach? I see God who sees me, who's gone on seeing me after I haven't seen, and the well is called Be'er Lahai Ro'i, something about the well of seeing. What does it say here? What does she do? She sits against this and says, I will not see. I will not look. I will not see. You can't make me watch this. I may have no power over this, but I will not see it. And so she, she won't watch the child die, and then vayek, and she weeps. She lifts her voice, and I don't imagine it as weeping, I imagine it as howling. She howls. Okay, go, go up to 17. And what happens? 
She howls and says, I won't see, but that doesn't mean I won't scream. Vaishma Elohim. And God heard. What? At Kol Hana'ar. God hears the voice of the boy. Vayikra Malach Elohim El Hagar. And at that moment, a Malach of God speaks to Hagar. I will not see. Howls. And in lifting up her voice, God hears and the Malach speaks. It is Hagar's action of howling her pain and, and rejection of all of this that causes the divine to hear and the Malach to speak. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of the boy in Hebrew, Be'asher Husham, where he is. God responds to the boy. The voice, maybe the moaning, the coal, the voice of the boy is possibly his moaning, whatever, his own, you know, whatever noise he's making. But it's Hagar's howling that allows the boy to be heard. Fear not, because I have heard, heard the boy, Ba'asher Husham, where he is. Not where you want him to be. Not where you thought he was going to be. Not what you imagined for him. I'm the one. I, God, I hear him where he is. Kumi, get up. Se'iyatana'ar, to take up the boy. And, and take him by the, held him by the hand. For I will make of him a great people. Then God, vayivkach Elohim et eneha. This verb is only used for eyes. It's not patach, it's pakach. God, only pak, uh, your eyes are only pakach. Everything else is patach. Opened. So this beautiful Hebrew word for God opened up her eyes and she saw. Now she sees. So she wouldn't see, she refused to see. She has agency and uses the only thing left, her voice, to cry out against this. And now she sees. What did she not want to see? The fact that there's no water to sustain the boy. This is all Toba Spitzer. What happens on the other other part of her, the other side of her lifting up her voice in protest is now she sees and there is, of course, a well and the boy is, his thirst is slaked. He's sustained, right? Beautiful, beautiful um, bracketing of this moment of Hagar um, giving the last she has in protest. Um, and it is that which, right, is the pivot on which the whole story now flips over into she sees, she sees, of course, a well, and vateshk etanaar, and this is another Hebrew verb for to slake someone's thirst. We don't have an English word, I guess, slake. Vayihi, <laughs> Elohim So the boy grew up. He dwelt in the wilderness and became a bowman. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And what happens? What, what do we hear next about Hagar? What's the last thing we hear about Hagar? She acquires for her son an Egyptian wife. So, so she goes back to having agency. She is free. Her son is fine and healthy. And she's like, you know what? 
I'm done with the juice, right? I'm done with this whole drama. I'm going to get a good Catholic girl for my boy. <laughs> so she goes, and I don't think it's an accident that we're told she gets for him an Egyptian wife. She's been attached to her culture the whole time. Possibly this is what bothered Sarah so much. You're importing something, and I, as a priestess, like, you're, what? No. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm trying to think of what, what's just as bad that parents, you know, would have with young people. Like, you know, like, what's just as bad? Like, if it's not religion, I don't know. Like, what, you know, when your kids are just going completely astray because, I don't know, they're wearing... Drugs. Politics. Drugs. Politics. <laughs> right? Right? Right, getting vaccinated. right. You're, I'm blue. You're red, and you're gonna bring that stuff into this house. I don't join a cult, huh? Join a cult. Join a cult. Okay, so that right, they're often like you know, yeah, Kabuki Land, and or what's it called? Uh, when I was growing up, it was Hare Krishna. They, you know, we our parents were terrified we were gonna be like influenced by Hare Krishna, um, and so. And we heard about it at school all the time, right? So exactly, somebody brings that into your home your ki- and it's influencing your kid and you see your kid start to go that way, right? It's those visceral things that, and Hagar says, yeah, now I'm free and I'm going to get a wife for my son. It's going to be from my tradition. So we have this amazing story of Hagar, this Terrible story as we've inherited about Sarah, which is why I always feel like the obligation to reconstruct it. Um, and you can stop sharing now, uh, Rachel. Thank you. <clears throat> and I go back to what I started with last week. I, I find it amazing that our foundational narratives have Hagar being the one in the whole family who winds up talking with the Malach, talking with the Malach of Yudhe of Elohim. And and having Zarah, having seed, and being the matriarch of of a people. She's the matriarch of a nascent people here. But in acquiring a wife for her son, deciding what kind of a wife that is, that is the role of the leader. And that means they're going to have children, and that means we have the nascent birth of the Ishmaelites here, of which Hagar is the only, you know, head of that clan, as far as we're told. Possibly, like I said, Abraham goes to be with her, and they have a very happy Ishmaelite experience, right? And, you know, okay. All right, so, for for us, I, I always feel like, as we've said, ger, stranger, foreigner, our, our text says, yeah, and, right, okay, yeah. There can be tensions, there can be differences, yeah. And sometimes that might even mean have a great life far away from me, but it does mean have a great life. You deserve one too. We may not be able to figure this out. We may not be able right now to to do this very easily or very well, and you might need to go to college. Let's just say, go to college, have fun there. And I hope it's on the East Coast. I'm going to hide the UC application. Um, And I think that's important. That our text doesn't end with, and Hagar got what she deserved. And the Israelites won. And we're the best. And Ishmael's gone. And woohoo! Yitzhak becomes this great people. That is not our story. 
Our story is, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes we're too different, and sometimes attention is too much, and you need to go far away. But I, but you should, our text says, you should have a life, because you have the same access to the divine that I do. You are just as worthy and deserving of attention. Your voice should matter as much as mine. We might just can't live together in the same house anymore. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.